0: Come to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What do we really know about UFOs? What is exopolitics all about? Do UFO hunters ever run into ghosts? Welcome to the
1: 459th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Dr. Bill Burns, and I'm sitting in for Ben Eno this evening.
0: Well, Bill, it's always great to have you back with us. Ben is still slogging through his summer course in Boston, but we will be, but he will be back with us in a, probably about two weeks. Meanwhile, we're doing an open-line show on the UFO subject this evening, and who better to have with me than our good friend Dr. William J. Burns, Renaissance man, publisher of UFO Magazine. Bill is a prolific author, speaker, and producer in several different subject areas, He's well known from international television and radio, and especially from the blockbuster documentaries he has produced and appeared in, particularly the UFO Hunters series on the History Channel. And Bill has been a true friend to this show as well. He's, uh, He's gotten us out of a few jams over the years. He's also the author of the new bestseller, Dr. Feelgood, the true story of Dr. Max Jacobson, and how he changed history by manipulating President John Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, and other key figures of the 20th century. Long title for a great book. So let's get right to our listener emails. Okay, let's start with uh, Bill. I don't know if you know Larry Lowe from Phoenix. He's a well-known journalist in that area and a UFO researcher. And he sent in a few questions, actually two questions in that I'd like to start with this evening. We have far more than we'll ever get to, but let's, let's get going. Larry is wondering about the citizens' hearings on UFO disclosure. These took place, I believe, in April... And I don't know if you were there, but several of our friends were. Were they a help or a hindrance? Larry would like to know.
1: Uh, Where in so far, you know, Larry's question is great. And I do know who Larry Lowe is. Larry's question is great because it goes to kind of the essence of um, disclosing information about UFO events and the paranormal um, and whether... Just disclosure within the UFO community does anything. And that's kind of where UFO Magazine sits and UFO Hunter sits and things like that. Mm. In terms of the citizens' hearing, this was um, with one major difference, one major difference, uh, very much like the same kind of hearing that was held in. 2007, same venue, National Press Club, where pilots and um, all kinds of um, aeronautical individuals, experts, testified before the world's press. It wasn't really a a testimony. They were speaking before the uh, the world's press about their first-hand unique experiences encountering UFOs. And, of course, there wasn't a lot of press there. Uh, James Fox filmed it. Uh, We filmed it for UFO hunters, and it kind of bubbled up and then faded away. This citizens' hearing, the difference was that there were a number of former congressional representatives, so officials, and the premise of the hearing was this, and this was a good idea that Steve Bassett had, um, considering the fact that um, Congress... Rarely has taken up the UFO issue. It did uh, majorly with Professor James McDonald when he testified before Congress, and of course Stan has spoken um, about the subject, Stan Friedman, before Congress. But Mm -hmm. this was a situation where if you could bring retired former congressional um, representatives and Senator Mike Gravel and others together as if it were a legislative hearing, just the a committee hearing, and then have witnesses testify as they would at a hearing, would that sway the congressional representatives into thinking maybe we should study the subject more? So the bar wasn't really all that high. It's not as though the congressional representatives, it's not as though there was cross-examination, you know, where skeptics and debunkers showed up and tried to cross-examine the witnesses, um... At a hearing, this was a case where the witnesses spoke for themselves, maybe in some cases talked about video they've seen, first-hand encounters, and then based on that testimony, the question was, what would the congressional representatives um, do and some of them said absolutely i think there is something here probably unconventional can't tell you what it is but were i still in congress i would definitely call for an investigation of this field mm-hmm. that's on the one hand and others said well i'm not really persuaded that something unconventional exists but it's really something uh, where i'd like to see the evidence more evidence to convince me
0: okay so, were you there
1: no, I was not there. It was in okay. Washington, D.C., and I wasn't there. But this issue of UFO Magazine, and by the way, this issue of UFO Magazine is digital, and it's available free to anyone who wants to read about the Citizens' Hearing, because one of our um, writers, Kevin Randall, was there. He testified, oh, yeah. and he wrote the article on the Citizens' Hearing for UFO Magazine. It's free. Go to ufomag.com, that website, download it for any device you have. And it's all yours for free, including the
0: article on the citizen's hearing. Excellent. Well, Gary Heseltine was on, and he was telling us about the hearings. He was there. Gary Heseltine, for those who don't know, is a British police official who has probably the largest database of police UFO sightings probably in the world, although it's mainly British police. But he was saying a much... Uh, As you did, Bill, that it was a very impressive situation for the members of Congress who were there. I believe there were five members of, uh, maybe one, maybe four or five members of Congress who usually don't receive this information in any, any, uh, you know, concrete form. And he said they were very impressed with what they heard from the speakers there. So, uh, I guess perhaps in answer to Larry's question, it was more of a help than a hindrance.
1: Well, it was more, it was, it was more of a help than a hindrance, but it was a help in a very limited sphere of, I mean, if you needed to say, um, if the UFO community managed to get its act together and make evidentiary-based representations for a congressional committee, what would the reactions, what might the reactions be? Well, you get an inkling of what those reactions might have been from the people who were assembled, but remember they were paid to be there.
0: Exactly, the, yeah. They, received they were paid start. about
1: $20,000 $20, to be right. there. Yeah. So you're not looking at something completely independent. You're looking at people who were paid to be there and paid to be part of this particular event. My theory is this, that it is probably likely, to answer again Larry Lowe's question, it is probably likely that the people who need to know about the subject in Congress already know about the subject in Congress. There is an embargo on it, there is a taboo on it, and um, they will simply not talk about it, nor will Congress take this seriously. They did back, in back. Oh, I would say, in the 70s and 80s, when they did have testimony before Congress, and uh, obviously um, when Gerald Ford, the representative from the Hildale area of Michigan, in 1966, after the Hildale sighting, he called on Mendel Rivers the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, to open up an investigation into UFOs that was promptly shut down by uh, the folks at Blue Book, by the head of Blue Book, and um, Jerry Ford backed off, and as you remember, he was the subject of two assassination attempts after he became president.
0: Yeah. That's true. Uh, let me pause right here just to, uh, I, I'm always, Ben is always chiding me for, forgiving to give, for forget, forgetting to give our phone number and it's uh, locally 401-766-1240 and uh, nationally or in Canada 800-449-1240 if you'd like to talk to Bill today or me. And uh, I, I'm also going to mention that it looks, it's awfully strange out there in the sky. <laughs> and I'm wondering, uh, keep your eye on the skies, uh, watch the skies, but in this case it's for the weather. So if anything happens, we, uh, it has happened at the station before we have uh, lost power, and I'm not going to anticipate that. But if it does, just bear with us. And I think our producer has some sort of uh, something up his sleeve in case that happens. Anyway, uh, let's continue. Um, this is a second question from Larry, Bill. And he's in reference to uh, John Kelly uh, trying to connect the recent whistleblower, Ed Snowden. Ed Snowden, if anybody watches the news, uh, should know that this is the NSA whistleblower. Uh, So I've been all over the news for the past few weeks, uh, talking about the U.S. government surveillance programs. And John Kelly, whom I do not know, is trying to connect the recent whistleblower, Ed Snowden's work, to PRISM, which is the the project for the surveillance, to UFO false flag preparations. What What say you to that, Bill?
1: Here's, here's my large take on this entire Snowden-NSA um, disclosure, okay? This is my take. Call me crazy, okay? Yeah. If you were, and this is to Larry Lowe, just think about this, Larry. If you were the President of the United States, and you really wanted to, fu- and you had a Congress... That, you know, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, I don't care. You had a Congress that was adamantly opposed to anything you did, even if you were proposing Congress's own ideas. Okay, let's just start with that premise, because this is fact, it's not my opinion so far. Okay. And you're president, and you wanted to open up a big dialogue, force Congress to confront a program that you voted against and ran against when you were running for for Senate and then for the presidency, and you ran against, you don't like it, you don't believe in it, you don't want it to continue, you feel that it was unconstitutional at its outset, it's called ab initio, unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional now, you absolutely don't like it, how would you bring that before the public? Well, my thought is this, find some useful idiot who is fulminating, who is fulminating against this program, make it easy for him to get whatever material you want, including lots of lots and lots of disinformation, go public, because why would Snowden, here's my question, why would Snowden go to um, Greenwald at The Guardian and go to, I forget the other guy, at The Washington Post, but why go to them? I mean, if he's NSA and he's busy setting up this with, uh, this with various news reporters, wouldn't it be likely that somebody at the NSA who's tracking every piece of information would want to know why one of their own contractors is going out to a reporter to talk to a reporter? I mean, wouldn't that strike you? So why not let this guy disclose? Go to Hong Kong, have a nice day, disclose whatever you want to disclose. That puts this subject right in front of the american people now we have to have a discussion about it we have to deal with it in congress even if congress wanted to sweep it under the rug for me i see this entire operation as false flag from the beginning and it's a brilliant way to find a way to deep six things like um nsa um spying on american people domestically
0: interesting well we have a caller we have bob from cumberland rhode island who has a question
1: yeah, good, good, good afternoon afternoon uh, gentlemen Paul and uh, good evening. You know, um, I just said, this has been on my mind for a long time it's not related to what we were just talking about but the Phoenix lights uh, Paul you were in a unique position to be flying over Phoenix during that supposed so, so sighting
0: yeah that was a, that was a shocker for me
1: and I know there was two different types of sightings there but Bill and Paul I'm referring to the so-called mile wide UFO the 830 uh, sighting yeah. The one that people said, I know, I saw one woman interviewed said she could lift a newspaper over her head and it still wouldn't cover how big it was. <clears throat> that's right. But, exactly right. But my quick question is, gentlemen, what are the chances that that was a, a hologram? A very good, in, in my opinion, if if, 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 if Paul saw it, that's, that's a whole separate line of a response for me. I think that uh, the person that I spoke to and whose credibility I trusted the most was Governor Fife Symington, former Mm -hmm. governor of Symington of Arizona, and he said flat out that it was a palpable object. He believed it was palpable because when he looked through it, the stars seemed wavy as if some film were passing over the stars, and that it was a a clear night. So he thinks that it really was a craft and not a hologram mm-hmm
0: okay well what i saw were separate i was in a plane i saw separate lights doing different things one appeared to land and of course we're whipping by you know at thirty-three thousand feet and it's very difficult to tell the uh, the height of an object from an airplane you know that would with, with your eyeballing it and uh <clears throat> it was um something quite uh, it seemed to three separate objects but it did match the description and uh, i spent 12 years in the military, I know what a flare looks like, and it's not what this was. I will point out one thing, though. And I, Bill, I don't know if I've ever told you this. Uh, Lynn uh, Kitai, who was a uh, uh, local investigator in Phoenix and author, and a wonderful person. We've had her on the show a number of times. She sent me a number of videos in preparation for one of her appearance, appearances. And uh, among these videos was what was very clearly a small plane with a triangular lights affixed beneath it. Flying over, and it was, and I said, "What is this about? You know, was this a hoax?" And there was some reference by, by Lynn to who was a very credible person, a doctor, Lynn, a medical doctor, and she said that this was, um, well, apparently someone was experimenting or something like this. But I, I really was not satisfied with the answer. May Bill, have you heard of anything like this? Yes, I have.
1: Okay, um, what, what's the, the story with that? Okay, in the Hudson Valley sightings, basically about a dozen years before the phoenix lights and the hudson valley sightings after people and this is the upper hudson valley cornwall places like that right okay yeah after after a number of witnesses had seen these lights after a number of witnesses had seen these lights um a group of retired uh pilots but they were private pilots now um and they began flying in formation over the Hudson Valley. And they said that I forget the name I forget the name um of the group, but they said that the Hudson Valley sightings were really their planes flying over. It was a big joke. but the <laughs> problem was that people who saw their planes flying over and people who saw the Hudson Valley lights and people who heard their planes flying over, and didn't hear the Hudson Valley lights, said it was clear that, what's oh, called the Stormville Flyers, it was clear that the Stormville Flyers were trying to hoax it, and for some reason, and I talked to somebody from the CIA about how this stuff happens, is it just like in somebody's mind it pops up, and he says, no, it happens is something like this, you have more CIA cutouts, um, and listening posts, and cooperating folks, Uh, in the United States domestically than you could possibly imagine. And they have a lot of contacts, just like any police force has its own informants. Mm -hmm. And what they do is if somebody's in a bar bad-mouthing the whole UFO incident, and I can show that's a big fake, somebody will sidle up to that person at the bar and say, hey, you know, you want to get paid to do this? I'll finance you. I think it's a fake, too. The person wouldn't know he was being set up by an intelligence entity, whether military or civilian, just he's getting some money to do it this is your opportunity to prove you're right sure and that's how that kind of thing works and it's happened on a few occasions
0: well yeah well also uh, bob brings up an interesting Our caller just brought up an interesting point with the hologram thing now i'm not a big conspiracy theorist although i'm starting to wonder some of the stuff we get i know that you're an expert on that kind of thing bill what is your opinion of, of this opinion that Many of these things are holograms or and or that the, the government or someone is preparing to generate holograms to make people think there's a UFO invasion in order to strengthen the grip of our masters in Washington or whatever you want, however you want to put it.
1: Right. Uh, I, I, I don't think the latter is the case at all. I mean, if if the government really wanted... If the government really wanted to do some kind of a martial law thing, sorry, Alex Jones, if the government really <laughs> wanted to do some kind of martial law thing and really exert its power, they could, I mean, when you realize what they have done, right, they were putting um, American-born Germans in concentration camps up, in, up, in, up near Wisconsin during World War II. They were imprisoning Japanese-Americans in concentration camps. Um, in fact, the German POWs we took during World War II, put him in New Mexico, had more freedom than native-born American citizens relocated to concentration camps. Mm -hmm. The government has the facilities, has the means, and can certainly do forced relocation. With all the disasters we've had, from Hurricane Katrina, from, you know, I mean, um, Hurricane Sandy, all these things, the government has had more than ample opportunity to experiment with In arm like FEMA coming in and and, um, doing damage. They haven't. Not under conservative presidents, not under moderate or progressive presidents. It hasn't happened, and it Mm -hmm. won't happen, because there's no interest. First of all, you don't need the government to do that, because American citizens are more than willing to give up all their personal information. Think of life right now as the movie The Truman Show, and I mean that seriously. Wow. Yeah. With Facebook, with Twitter, with LinkedIn, with the with well, with the web, with all the social media. And with iPhones generating your uh, your GPS location every 30 seconds, you can be pinpointed by satellite wherever you are, mm-hmm. unless you actually drop off the grid. The only person who successfully dropped off the grid and was able to elude the FBI was the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. And we all know how he did that. He did it by dropping off the grid living in a wooden shack in Montana and riding his bike to the post office to deliver his bombs. When he went public... With his manifesto, that's when he was caught. My point is you don't need UFOs to create um, a kind of a, a prison state. But as the holographs and neutral buoyancy aircraft, we've been experimenting with those for 10 to 15 years. And it is, if you have a solid object on which, and smoke would be that kind of a, um, a, a particle object on which to project a holographic image, you could do that. So theoretically, if you have a huge neutral buoyancy craft, like a balloon, uh, triangular-shaped balloon floating across, no gas propulsion, and you wanted to demonstrate the ability of that craft to fly away at hypersonic speeds, just project that hologram, and then the craft itself can go black, and folks won't know that the craft is still there. It's the hologram that moved away. We have that technology.
0: Well, that makes sense to me. Uh, We're going to get ready to take our break here. And uh, we're going to be uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno this evening. The uh, Paul Eno and Bill Burns on WOON 12:40 a.m. in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with more questions from listeners. Stay with us.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Bell, the host of When Radio Was. I might have Is that you under that blindfold? With this thing on, I can't see who I am. No, I imagine not. (laughs) Can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. When Radio Was, shows from the past for today's imaginations. When Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m.
0: Okay, I'd like to tell you about two charities Ben and I have adopted of the several we have adopted, and one is USA Cares. USA Cares provides financial and advocacy assistance to post-9-11 active duty U.S. military serv- military personnel, veterans and their families, and they assist all branches of the service, all ranks and components, and they really do a lot of good on a basic level. In other words, if a veteran has trouble paying his or her mortgage, out goes a check from USA Cares. Uh, they raise money, they do all kinds of great things, and we do uh, suggest that you check them out, usacares.org, and they we are uh, trying to uh, look at starting a chapter here in Rhode Island, and we're going to suggest that you, you can contact me directly on that, Paul, at BehindTheParanormal.com or 401-527-5345. If you're interested, it's uh, relatively simple, and we could do a great uh, great job for them, uh, I think, here in Rhode Island. Also, for our Canadian listeners, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Advocacy founded by the veteran uh, Bill Blaze, and you can check that out at CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org do a lot of great things. They do a lot of legislative advocacy in Ottawa for the veterans uh, of uh, Canada, Are certainly our our good cousins and allies uh, throughout uh, all the uh, troubles of the war on terror. So please check that out as well. Okay, let's return to the show now and our uh, co-host, Bill Burns, and we're answering questions from listeners. And here's one, Bill, from Frank R. in San Bernardino, California. And Frank writes... Hi, guys. I can't wait to hear my three favorite paranormal guys on the air together. Paul and Ben, you always end your shows with thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and I really love that. I agree that's what the paranormal is all about. What I wanted to ask you and Bill Burns is this. Wasn't there supposed to be a traveling exhibit of alien bodies approved by the government? This was to be called Cosmic Journey. Do you or Bill have any information on whether that was true or what happened to it?
1: Well, my understanding is that in the in the opening moments, in the opening moments of uh, Roswell, uh, according to an affidavit that was sworn out by Walter Hout, who was the public information officer at the Roswell Army Airfield, the 509th, that initially in that in those first hours, Roger Ramey, General Ramey, showed up at the base and uh, said, "Look, since the first... Crash seventy-five miles or whatever north of Roswell. Since that crash, since Chavez County public safety officials, the fire department, the sheriff already rolled on that crash, thinking it was an air. Uh, there was an airplane crash. Saw the alien body. Saw this. Saw that. You know, let's cop to it. Let's say yes. But the other crash, it was a, another one two UFOs might have collided uh, forty miles away. That one nobody knows about. Let's keep that secret. Hmm. And. That was kind of a double cross because when uh, Jesse Marcel, Major Marcel, arrived at uh, Fort Hood, uh, arrived at Fort Worth, not Fort Hood, Fort Worth, um, it was Roger Ramey who pulled the switcheroo on the debris, and Marcel had to say, "Oh, gee, I guess I made a big mistake. It's really a well, we
0: mistake. had his son on the air last week.
1: Right. So, so the point that I'm trying to get to is if. That they never really believed, even from the outset, that they wanted to put alien bodies on display. This was a major, major, this was so secret. As the Canadian Wilbert Smith had said when he spoke to Robert Oppenheimer, that uh, Oppenheimer, who was part of the Manhattan Project, said that, The secrecy involving the incident at Roswell and the technology that they discovered at Roswell, uh, that secrecy was greater than the secrecy of the Manhattan Project. So I tend Mm. to go along with that early comment. So no, I don't see that as an exhibition of alien bodies going across the country.
0: Well, it's funny that Frank writes this question this particular period in our show's history, because I'm currently on a hunt for the fellow, he lives in Florida, and he was the development director for that project, which was, uh, interestingly enough, supposedly a, a project that was uh, between, I guess, uh, sanctioned by the government, but organized by, um, I can't remember quite the name of the company offhand, but it was uh, they essentially had produced circus material before this. And uh, there is a rumor that I've heard the Cosmic Journey was really supposed to be just animatronics and things of this kind, and it, it was killed in 1989. So I don't know. We're going to try and do a show on that and see what the story was. But I know it is very little known. Stan Friedman hadn't heard of it, uh, what he told right. me. It's...
1: It, 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 um it's something that in, in UFO lore, it's so easy to get tangled up with other events uh, that, you know, I mean, if, if it was a circus project, if it really was kind of like, if there were aliens, what might they look like? That's one thing. Or it could be a massive government. You know, the government likes to have fun, but they just don't want to spend money on hoaxes. Yeah, so that's yeah. why I I'm, I'm very kind of skeptical about the government weighing in and spending sums of money on trying to create a false story to divert information from UFOs. They did that in the late 1940s and early 50s by going to the entertainment industry. This is what the CIA did, and giving them stories about alien landings and alien clashes. And the point was to turn what was real, what they believed was real, into fiction. And so, by fictionalizing it, you can hide it right there in plain sight. And then, when people would see it, they would say, "Oh, you're just a Hollywood nut, like the people seeing Earth versus the Flying Saucers." That's just and what I learned in the
0: military. Life. That's what you do. You, you right. send, you, you, yeah, that's exactly what you do. You don't try and keep secrets because you can't. You send out misinformation. Right. Well, anyway, here's another question, Bill. This is from uh, Kenny G in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Everybody in Cumberland's excited tonight. Hi Paul and Ben, your show makes oh I thought it said makes me sick. Well, it makes makes me makes my week. Well, that's good. It's such a relief from the usual reality show bovine fecal matter. I love Bill's shows too, and I like to know the real story about why UFO Hunters was canceled in 2010. It was the best show on UFOs I ever saw. There are all kinds of stories, like you guys got to close too close to Area 51. Or found out too much about human hybrids. What's the real story?
1: Well, both of those, both of those are actually true. Um, really, I, I, th- I think one of the bigger issues was there a bunch of issues that all coalesced around the same time. First of all, the budgets were very high for the show, and History Channel didn't want to spend that much money on a show. Although we had some major sponsors, Apple and IBM, and Porsche and Mercedes, and sponsors that I got. Them, yeah, that didn't make sense to me. Yeah. Right? Okay, so that's one. But the other thing was this: <clears throat> that History Channel was starting a new channel called H2. And what they were what they had lined up, the success of a show like Ice Road Truckers, which was really about the interactions between the people, set up the American porn stars, American Pickers, Swamp People, you know, all those shows, mm-hmm. what they discovered, what they discovered about that channel was that people loved to see shows that really um, attracted the uh, trailer park market. They loved
0: it. Yeah, that's um, well put. Yes, exactly. I'm the thinking ratings of the ratings p-
1: were very high.
0: Right. Well, I'm thinking what of the pilot we made. Ben and I made in, in with a, the New York producer who will remain nameless. But you know, we they went to the networks and they, we were essentially told we we didn't argue enough and we were too intelligent. So right, <laughs> what they want is they
1: want this organic fighting, which is why in the third season of UFO Hunters, Ted Ackworth, Dr. Ted. <laughs> um they had a baby so his travel ability was severely restricted because he because they had a baby he was starting a new business of uh, ted's wife worked full-time at a bank i mean they were just there was just no time left so ted couldn't travel with the team the way they the network wanted him to mm-hmm. so as a result they changed the angle of the show getting away from science into supposedly <clears throat> with kevin cook who's a really nice guy That he was the engineer and the skeptic, and he really did have an engineering degree from Penn State. He was the engineer and the skeptic. I was supposed to be the nutcase, and (laughs) Pat was supposed and Pat was supposed to be the um, guy that gets out there and goes digging and builds bridges and stuff. Well, there were three problems with this: that Pat had done his own interviews, Kevin really was a believer in UFOs, not a skeptic, and he was playing one on TV, and he didn't like it, and he he just felt very um, conflicted by it and of course I wasn't in a nutcase and we had some real stuff like the Dulcie episode yeah. where <clears throat> Kevin had to take a skeptical stance but you're staring at a photograph of a cow's body with a human head tough to take a skeptical ch- um, sh- shot unless you say oh the whole thing was photoshopped but you're photoshopping something from the, before photoshop was invented so uh, that was one of the problems so it was um, <clears throat> the real thing was Not only did history want to move all the UFO and paranormal stuff over to H2, right, and keep the main stuff, but the budgets were high, and the other thing was, yes, we did step on some phenomenally big toes at Area 51. Yeah. This one CIA guy that intercepted us along the way in the third season said, your show's going to be canceled, you got a lot of people mad at you, you stepped on some really big toes, you don't climb Tickaboo Peak, with a 300 millimeter, a huge telephoto lens, <laughs> yeah. and film something, and then match that up with um, what you find on Google Earth, and then put 24-hour surveillance cameras around the base and actually capture a UFO over the base. That was your. That was the last thing you'll ever. You know, that was the end of your second season. The people at Area 51, the guards, the Delta Force guards, and the private contractors were falling on the floor laughing, their bosses were steaming with fury.
0: Wow! Well, wow, that's the story there. Uh, sometime I'll tell you what happened to me down there. Anyway, here's another question. This is from um, Steffi in Manchester, UK. Can Bill tell us what was the weirdest UFO case he ever ran into? He's just got several questions here. I'll just take them one at a time.
1: Well, the weirdest case for me was in the UK, and it is the uh, because it's a case. Here's, here is, here's my criteria for the weirdest case. So it's not just throwing a name out. It is when a number of events that should be disparate events become tied together under the rubric of a UFO encounter and the government takes that rubric so seriously it then takes all the events that surrounded that UFO encounter and wraps them into a national security act penalizes the person that was the experiencer of that event, and then puts the whole thing under national security. This happened in England, and for me the case is the Alan Godfrey case would take all night to go through it, but essentially it's the story of a police officer. And Gary Hazeltine knows the case because he talked about this case. It's the case of a police officer, a constable, who, um, who, who was called... To investigate the discovery of a dead body lying on top of a coal heap in the town of Todd Morton it was as a coal oh, mine
0: Oh, the Adamski thing, yeah.
1: The the Adamski thing, right? And everything. I mean, if Columbo, if Lieutenant Columbo were there, he would have found everything wrong about that case. Okay, I'm not going go into the details, but it was like a case where everything about it was wrong. The guy had a the guy had a heart failure. But, how did he get to a twenty five foot coal heap on top of the coal heap with a bad ticker? okay the guy 's ticker was so bad it was a weak heart, so that's first of all mm-hmm. he couldn't then how did he wind up on his back on top of the coal heap with no coal on him? You know there was mm-hmm. no coal on the guy, right? Yep. no coal under his fingernails now, yes, it had rained the night before, but under his fingernails. The guy was had been undressed and redressed, and he had holes in the back of his head with an ointment that the medical examiner in the U.K. could not identify. was unknown. So there were burns where there was some kind of a headpiece put on his head. Mm-hmm. Why all that? Okay, then, then, this, this gets even worse, then the cop investigated it, Alan Godfrey, disputed the coroner's findings at the inquest, he was told to shut up. It was The official comment was the guy died of natural causes of heart failure, even though nobody could explain how the guy could get up to a coal heap in the rain and leave no footprints around the coal heap, and there was no coal dust on the bottom of his shoes. How do you climb up a coal heap and have no coal dust,
0: right? That's difficult. So
1: there's that case of basically a 187 discovery of a dead body. Wow. So a, um, a short time later... Godfrey is called out there were missing cows from the pasture. Goes to the pasture, sure enough, the cows are missing. Where are the cows? No footprints. Where'd they go? Mm -hmm. How did cows disappear without footprints? Right? Driving down the road, sees this huge triangular-shaped object hovering just a few couple of feet off the ground, and it had been raining, as it always rains in Britain. It had been raining, and where the object was spinning, it was creating like a vortex. There were leaves, it was in November, there were leaves being strewn around in a spiral, but underneath the UFO it was dry, okay? So um, Godfrey doesn't have a camera, so he whips out his clipboard to try and take notes, write a report, do some sketches. There's a blinding flash. He's blinded. Next thing he knows, he's on the other side of where the object was. It's not there anymore. But the leaves are still in a spiral shape. The road is still dry. He, dry. he can't account for the time. Drives back, gets another constable, they drive up the constable, witnesses the phenomenon of rain, 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 but no rain there, it's dry. And the leaves. Goes back, then he finds out that there were UFO sightings reported all across the area. Then they find the cows in another pasture. Nobody knows how they got there, because there are no footprints. And they couldn't have crossed the road, because there's no, nobody saw on the road. It was like they were levitated, lifted up, and thrown into another pasture. Well, he can't figure out what it is the basic um ufo groups in the uk decide to investigate the case and they're pressing on him to do regression therapy to see what happened during that missing time he does and he's board, and he's taken aboard a spacecraft and they're doing all kinds of experiments on the guy and they deposit him back in his police car the the police department gets so mad at him that they basically say no more regression therapy, no more this, no more that. It's a dead case. They get him to sign a National Securities Act letter, right, Mm -hmm. acknowledging that he's under the control of the National Securities Act, but in the letter is the Adamski case, right, the uh, Zygmunt Adamski case, as well as the UFO sighting, as well as the cattle stuff. And here's the weird thing, okay, bookending this particular, that's weird enough, right? Yes, Here's the bookend to that. Long before he's called out on the Zygmunt Adamski case, the discovery, he is setting up to arrest some guys who had a warrant on them. He sees them at a local pub. He calls for backup and says, Okay, you guys, I'm arresting you. There's a warrant out for you. The guys beat him up. And they kick him in the testicles and they just pummel him. And he's told as a result, he's, he's invalided for a while, and he's told you will not be able to have children ever. Okay? Jeez. Now flash forward well after the UFO incident. Okay? In bed, and he's hearing, and he hears a hum at night. He can't figure out what's wrong with him. Then in the night, he feels activity in places where he hadn't felt activity before. And he and his wife uh, enjoy that activity. And they have a kid. What happened on board that UFO? Now he says the doctors told him, "Oh, you just healed yourself." But I've got a really funny feeling that whatever happened on board that UFO had a lot to do with why a guy who could not have had kids because he was injured now can have kids after everything that intervened between being beaten up by the suspects and having a child.
0: Wow, well, so- that's
1: the strangest case.
0: Okay, well, that answers that. Also, uh, now, Steffi continues, how did he, meaning you, Bill, get started in UFO research?
1: Well, uh, folks know it's on the Internet that I did this piece for History Channel where I had a UFO sighting all the way back in the 1950s. And you, you tuck it away, and you get excited about it, and you know something's up. and But it really wasn't until I was um, representing... Um, a book for a television series to a production company in Los Angeles. And they were the ones that had secured Lieutenant Colonel retired Philip Corso's motion picture and literary rights for a story about American POWs left behind in Vietnam. Corso was an expert on that uh, because of his role in negotiating Operation Little Switch, Big Switch at the end of the Korean War under the Eisenhower administration. So um, we're at this So I was editing this book for that movie company, trying to put all these stories together to put together a book, which would then be a rights magnet for a a theatrical or a television motion picture. That was the deal, right? Then Corso drops the two bombs. One was about the Kennedy assassination, in which he said he investigated the Warren Commission. Too long a story to tell, but it wound up in my book, Dr. Feelgood. And the other story was that when he was at the Pentagon, he saw the Roswell crash debris that was taken to the Pentagon by the Army. Well, this was in 1995, and Corso just made the headlines because he was testifying before the Robert Dornan uh, MIA committee, and he had talked about the fact that POWs were left behind in Korea to be used as playbacks, their identities back to be playbacks, and the KGB had already turned over their files to Yale University, the, Veneno, uh, the Venona files. So what Corso was saying and had been laughed at back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, he was laughed at that, now turned out to be true, and they actually found the presidential finding that Eisenhower had signed acknowledging American service personnel were being kept in China and the Soviet Union and North Korea as prisoners. And um, it was... There was a note on it with Corso's name on it. So suddenly Corso became the whistleblower of prominence for uh, for these people. And when he dropped the bomb, so he's now in the news. Then when he dropped the bomb about Roswell, we went to Simon Institute, so that had published, I think, four of my earlier books. And SNS said, you've got the 50th anniversary of Roswell coming up in um 1997 and if you can have this book out by then it's a deal made the book was published on the day of the roswell anniversary
0: i think i got it the day after
1: yeah yeah that was the day after roswell and then what happened was after that the folks who owned ufo magazine said look we're in over our heads here can you get can you get um the motion picture company to invest in the magazine so I, I, I brokered a deal between the motion picture company and them, at their request, to, uh, for them to buy into the magazine. They took it over. They ran the magazine for like eight or so years, maybe six years. It was a no-go. So they said to me, you know, we're closing it down. And I said, you can't close it down. You've got a whole community out there of people who, who really liked it. Oh, well, we're closing it down. So they said, give me a, you know, if you give me a buck, I'll give it to you. So I gave him a buck, and I got the magazine. Once I had it, and I had started an ebook company, and once I was able to put the two together for a list of kind of ebooks on UFOs and paranormal stuff. Once I did that. Uh, a production company from the History Channel came up. This was in 2004 and said, you know, do you know about the Russian Roswell, and Yar? And I said, yeah, I do. It's, we ran stories about it and we actually published a book with Phil Mantle and, uh, about it. And they a great. Um, they came down to where we were living in California. We were in Los Angeles back then. And we did 2004 and I did a, a piece for them on the Russian Roswell and Kapustan Yar. I
0: remember well, it that. It
1: turned out, it yeah. turned out the ratings for that UFO Files were very, very high. I did about four or five more for them, and then Pat Uskert, who was writing for UFO Magazine, and my wife came up with this idea—the two of them—about doing a road show for UFOs called UFO Road Trip. So we took it to one production company, and they said, "Nah, you know, we don't want to get in, involved with UFOs." And so I took it back to the production company that UFO Files. Um, my wife wrote up. Pat filmed, and I basically narrated a demo for them, and History Channel bought it, and that was how I got involved in UFO Hunters. and I see. Magazine.
0: You know, that, that's really cool. Bill, before we burn up, this has been the fastest hour I've run into lately. If Before we burn it up completely, would you tell us about your new book, Dr. Fee- Dr. Field? That title is the scariest thing I've heard tonight.
1: Well, Dr. Feelgood was a real person. In fact, anybody who watched the Mad, episode, Mad Men episode, Madman on AMC a few weeks ago, knows they had a character playing a doctor giving methamphetamine injections to all the people at Sterling Cooper Price. So, and that was, you know, that was Dr. Feelgood. In fact, they even called him Dr. Feelgood. I think it took it from our book, actually. But the story is this, that uh, the book is about a German immigrant doctor who invented... What is now modern methamphetamine injections in one of his top patients was President John F. Kennedy, whom he overdosed. Kennedy was sick. He was actually had a fatal disease, Addison's disease. Mm-hmm. He overdosed Kennedy to the point at the Vienna Summit Conference with Khrushchev that Kennedy was almost incomprehensible and he acted like he was drunk. That encouraged Khrushchev to make a move on Cuba, which he did. It turned out to be a big embarrassment for the Soviet Union that didn't have the missiles that could reach the United States from Asia, and they had to move the missiles out of Cuba, we moved the missiles out of Turkey, but since we almost went to a third world war, literally, it was tick, 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 that's how close it was, I spoke to pilots who were flying the Great Circle, who were flying over the Bering Strait with nuclear weapons, ready to attack the Soviet Bomber fleet coming over. It was that close. Then, when Kennedy wanted to pull us out of the Vietnam War, the CIA was furious because he killed the CIA paramilitary. He is exposing their dealing in drugs in Southeast Asia. And then uh, but, uh, when he was having these affairs with mistresses he was under the influence of methamphetamines he was slipping away from his secret service detail and having affairs with women off Central Park in New York running around the Carlisle Hotel naked the CIA said this is ridiculous they went to LBJ and they said if something should happen to the president two things can happen to you you cannot be on the 1964 ticket and you can go to jail where you're going because of the Bobby Baker scandal in the Senate or You know, um, you can go to the White House, collect your $200 and simply um, put a lid on this. On whatever happens, you just put a lid on it. not going to tell you in advance. And that's exactly what LBJ did. That was the assassination. LBJ went into a war. He was not a wartime president. Hated being in a war. Tried to get out. The only way he got out was to resign. I mean, was to not run for a second term. He forget about it. This is insane. Because he knew what he wanted to do in his second term. And he couldn't do it. They would have killed him. So that's why Nixon was able to go to the South Vietnamese embassy and tell the ambassador, hey, you know, don't sign on with Johnson's peace plan, sign on with mine. And he basically... Um, so the book is about that and about how Marilyn Monroe and Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston and Elvis Presley and all these famous people were all addicted to methamphetamines through this one doctor and how this doctor who was also a meth addict Became the poster boy for the war on drugs, lost his medical license, wow. poster boy for the war on drugs. Um, literally, the war on drugs started because of him, and it's how a drug like methamphetamines made its way into American culture until now it's routinely given to kids. Six, seven years old, who the school says are having attention focus problems.
0: Wow, it's methamphetamine I, I,
1: um, is what they're getting. Ritalin
0: and uh, and, uh, and Adderall and meth. Yeah, well, it's Doctor folks. Uh, I'm I'm going to read it. <laughs> I think you should too. I want to work one quick thing in here, Bill, because. Uh, We're almost out of time. This is the the last question from uh, Steffi in the the U.K., and she asks, uh, Paul and Ben, what was the weirdest UFO case you ever ran into? Well, uh, we're not UFO investigators as such, but uh, in all our years we spend a lot of time on cases, and we have a remarkable number of quote-unquote ghost cases that have led us right to UFOs. It's really strange. So I wanted to uh, punctuate that by just giving you a report from one of our we have show reporters in different places who report different things that are going on. And the weirdest case we're working on, probably one of the weirdest of my career in this, is in the central Connecticut in the area where this terrible Newtown shooting took place and a number of other odd things. And I wanted to get Bill's thoughts on this. This is uh, from uh, a reporter, Donna, uh, out there, and she says, What I wanted to report to you was a sudden and alarming increase in the helicopter traffic in our area. Now, the background of this is that we started with a a ghost case. She read my book, Footsteps in the Attic, and said this is the only thing that really explains this because it gets beyond all the spiritualist stuff we don't really believe in. And it it ended up in UFOs. We we ourselves saw strange things. People all over the town were, were getting out of their cars and looking up in the sky. There was strange military activity, and this was part of our pilot we were making that I mentioned to Bill before. And we were never allowed to see this. We've never seen the, the pilots. It's, it's, everything is weird about this. So there's more uh, helicopter traffic in the area. Frequent overflights by low-flying military planes in formation, they all head east to west. There are no heliports anywhere in our area, no small airports. Most of the helicopters are not reflective black, and the others are all built the same style, shiny, metallic, moving fast and low. The black ones have brackets sticking out on the side opposite the pilots with something mounted. There were no. There are no markings. Also, the one tall building in town has had dozens of antennas and all sorts of flat, cream-colored things mounted on the roof. We found strange things in the woods near this farm. They were using. It is senior housing. Within the last two weeks, they probably added over a dozen or more different types. Our city has only one AM radio station and no TV stations. So, Bill, what does this ring a bell anywhere with any any of your research? Uh, we're well, finding mean, all kinds it, of weird things over there.
1: It kind of does. I mean. Um what year, uh, is, is this an ongoing, um,? Event?
0: Yeah, we've been working on this since 05. By 09, we were getting UFO reports. People were seeing grays in their houses and we were identifying. Can you tell
1: me where in Connecticut this is?
0: Uh, not over the air. I will tell not you privately. Air. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, the, first of all, in Connecticut, there is a group or was a group called, I believe it was called SCORE. And the group was, I think founded by Father Martin, uh, by Father Malachi Martin.
0: Yeah, so I'm aware of that, yeah.
1: Okay, so you were in the group, okay? Yeah. And what they did was they exercised houses and people and they were involved in all kinds of weird things. Malachi Martin had that ability, but the understory of Malachi Martin was that he was working for the CIA. That's one of the reasons why he was able to get out of his regular orders as a Jesuit and come to the United States and, you know, he had a, a very happy life there. But he was working for the CIA. He wound up in a lot of th- uh, things dealing with UFOs. He wound up in Egypt and in France and places like that. So there, uh, there is a connection there between wh- wh- whatever doorway there is to paranormal. I kind of think, I do think, that there's more to the idea of parallel universes, parallel worlds, parallel realities than most people give credence to.
0: Well, you know what we think about that? Certainly an agreement.
1: Well, and that there are aspects of what people are calling UFOs, because they can't identify them, that emanate from these other realities, and there is traffic back and forth. And I think that is one of the major, major, major secrets. That, I mean, if you were the government, and you didn't want to freak out a population to admit there's that right next to you that you can't see it, but they might be able to see you as a parallel world and other parallel worlds, and there's traffic between them. Bingo. And better watch out, because what you think is your reality can change on a dime. Yeah, the whole time and we've seen it happen. Change. Exactly. I wouldn't disclose that. Why would you disclose that?
0: Of course, I've seen people, in, and this is in the 70s, I saw people while I was working doing pastoral work in psychiatric hospitals, who I know were experiencing real parallel wars, and I saw things happen, and so did doctors. That's why I was in there with the Jesuits, as a matter of fact. And so you, you really hit the nail on the head there, Bill.
1: Well, I mean, and I, and I think of the story in this hospital. I forget where it is. I want to say Long Island or, or, or New England, I'm not sure which hospital. This guy is in the hospital, he's getting an operation, and he is, um, and I trust the source, and he hears this clattering in the middle of the night. This thing is so loud he can't bear it. He looks up out of bed and he sees this guy, very pale, translucent, but a, a palpable individual, right, dragging this, this cart full of medicines. And he gets up out of bed. He, 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 he drags his own IV along behind him on wheels and he follows it to the nurse's station. The guy passes by. The nurses don't even acknowledge this thing, right? He says, what the hell was that? And they say, oh, that guy, he used to work here as an orderly. He died a few years ago, but he's still making his rounds.
0: There was Norwich State Hospital. I was there.
1: Then you well, know exactly the story.
0: On that note, Bill, I, I'm broken hearted to say it, but we're going to have to stop. We're flat out of time. What a great show. We're going to do this again. Uh, but in any case, so stick around for your last lines of your Ben tonight. So I want to thank our producer, the August Steve Bianchi. Next week, June 24th, I'll be co-hosting with... Uh, that's going to be Extreme Paranormal is going to be our subject. Larry Lowe, the fellow who wrote in. And we're going to talk about uh, a number of things. Uh, Larry, of course, is a Phoenix-based journalist and UFO researcher. And on the... uh, Oh, and it's your line. Sorry, go ahead. Well, anyway...
1: uh, No, uh, no, here's the deal. So uh, thank you very much for um, inviting me on the show. I look forward to talking with you again on the show. And uh, here we are on CBS Radio... This is the CBS radio edition of the show uh, on Sunday, June 23rd in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Windsor, Seattle, Vancouver, and on Radio.com. Poe and Ben will remain on the UFO subject with author Mac Maloney. Great. Great guest, Mac Maloney, for discussion of little-known areas around the world that are like Area 51. Mac Maloney, of course, wrote the book on military UFOs.
0: Okay, folks, we're done. Bill, thanks so much. We'll see you next week, everybody.
1: Thanks, everybody. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of. Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.